Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Stephen Huppert, an independent consultant and advisor to many institutions as they work on improving the retirement outcomes of Australians. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, you're well known now through LinkedIn and your social media more broadly around this tagline, which is not super yet. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so we hear a lot about superannuation. It's one of the largest retirement income savings systems in the world. It rates very highly in many of the surveys like the Mercer Melbourne Pension Index. And I think we do a pretty good job in the accumulation phase. We've been compulsory. There are things we can improve on, but most Australians now, most working Australians have some sort of retirement saving. Where we need to do much better is partly in the accumulation phase for people that are disenfranchised from the current system. So uh, self-employed people, people working multiple part-time jobs and are below the 450 limit in, in, in those jobs. But I think a real focus needs to be on life after full-time work, on what is superannuation delivering to Australians as they get closer to retirement and then they move into retirement. I, I often talk about superannuation and saving for retirement, a bit like um, one of the mountain phases of the Tour de France. When we're going up the mountain, it's really hard work and and we have to put your head down, your bum up and you pedal hard. But most people, it's a fairly similar sort of experience. We've just got to keep working, saving as much as we can, you know, make sure it's in a good fund, but there's not much else we can do as we're approaching the top of the mountain, as we're working towards retirement. It's actually on the way down is where the accidents occur. It's where the dangers and the unexpected events can occur. And that's where we need to shift our focus or to add to our focus in, in the superannuation industry on how we better help people transition to retirement and then have a really good life after full-time work. Before we get to the retirement aspect, you talked about sort of disenfranchised people I'm curious to get your thoughts on what's been happening with early access. We've seen 30 billion come out to date. Is that a sign of people being disenfranchised by the system? I think it's a, a useful hypothesis. I think we're, we're, it's much too early to tell exactly all the different motivations behind it, but I but I can see an interesting um, university research project at some point in time to look at why people are taking money out. And, and there's lots of anecdotes in the press about people taking money out to gamble or to spend. There are the people that are taking it out to put it into their mortgages, and there are those that are taking it out because they really need to do so. But I, but I think one of the, you know it's very important not just to try and imagine what people think about your organisation or the system, but look at how they act. And I think it's showing us that people are seeing the money as their money. Yes, they'd like to have it for retirement, but they've got more pressing needs at the moment. And one of the things that any of us working in superannuation need to get better at talking about is the tension between future and, and present. At the moment, I think too much focus is given to the future self and saving for retirement. And yes, that's important, but you know we've got our current needs as well. And 
how do we balance those ten- that tension is going to be one of the challenges for us going forward. Is part of that tension also because there's still the, the pension system that's there and many people still believe that the pension system provides a good enough standard of living and that I'll always be back-ended by the government and hence the superannuation is like this bonus that, that they have because the government ultimately will be the, the saviour at the end of the day? Look, that could be that could be the case for many. And I think there needs to be some proper research done. I think part of it is probably simpler than that in in that I've got a need today, not in 40 years' time, and it's too hard to think 40 years into the future. And just think back to what the world looked like 40 years ago or 30 years ago, how different it was. And so if we're talking to people and saying, oh, don't take your money out today because that means you'll be worse off in 30 years, Frankly, that's who knows where the world will be in 30 years. You know, again, there are especially at the moment with um, COVID, but we've got climate change, we've got other significant challenges. I'm going to spend my money today when I can. So I think it's probably even simpler than relying that I'm relying on the age pension. There's there's obviously a lot of behavioural issues here in terms of trying to get people to actually engage and think long term. What can funds do to help improve that? It is really important for funds to be able to look at the research and there's some really good research around looking at the future self and how we help people understand where they will be in the future. How do we visualise it? It was interesting. It was that last year before last, there was that iPhone app or the, the smartphone app that a lot of people were doing where they were taking a picture of themselves and ageing themselves and posting it on, on Facebook and Instagram. That actually is very, you know, th- there is a lot of scientific research that by looking at your future self physically, by ageing yourself, that can help you think about saving for your future self. And even some financial organisations have used such features to try and encourage people to save for their future self. Maybe in the not too distant future, we'll be able to use virtual reality or augmented reality to help people don't just give them a bit of paper saying this is what you'll have when you retire, but give them a, a, a virtual reality, almost like a Star Trek uh, hologram deck of this is what your life will be like if you keep on saving like you are, but here's what you could be looking like if you are if you put a bit more aside. So using emerging technologies, and I think your point about using behavioural finance research to help people understand that when I'm making a decision to take my money out and do something with it today, I am penalising my future self. And I am making, as long as people are making an informed choice on that, I haven't got too much of a problem, but are they making an informed choice? And how can the industry help people make better informed choices? You talk there about the the industry there and, and, and its role. Sometimes I sort of question, well, hold on, we've got these superannuation funds that are almost de facto product manufacturers. And yes, they're designed to generate returns for people and ultimately generate retirement income. But it feels that they still aren't structured to start taking into consideration all these behavioural issues, taking into consideration the journey that someone goes through as they go through accumulation and particularly in the retirement space. How do we potentially help these funds understand it? Or maybe these funds aren't even the right structure for dealing with particularly the retirement aspect. I think it's a really good point, Alex. People talk about disruption a lot about being new, new products or new technologies. I think a bigger disruption that's needed is disruption of business models. And you're spot on. The current business model, whether you're looking at the profit for members funds or the retail funds, the business model is an old 20-odd-year-old, 25-year-old business model. And so, therefore, to try and think about 
responding differently is very challenging. So whether an organisation, one of the existing organisations can disrupt their own business model enough or whether it needs to come from somewhere else is going to be interesting to see over the next three to five years. And I'm a strong advocate for sometimes that disruption coming from outside the incumbents. And can can somebody else pick up the mantle and say, okay, you're designing the products. We're not going to design products, but we're going to design a better business model for helping people in their transition to retirement or once they're in retirement, which isn't just about selling product, but it's looking at the whole person. It's looking at their family situation, social loneliness, recreation, thinking about mind, body and work together, thinking about their values and beliefs and their purpose in retirement. And product is a part of that. And superannuation funds can play a role in an organisation that's looking at doing something like that but needs to be bringing in ideas from other disciplines, not just financial. Could be well-being, it could be health, corporate health, it could be mental health. Those sort of aspects need to be brought into play as well. It sounds like you're sort of advocating a retirement coach, actually. Is that a fair analogy? That's a really interesting comment because we've seen the growth of retirement coaches over the last few years, and there are a number of small organisations doing bits in this space. One organisation that I do a bit of work with is called Changing Gears, where they develop, they run workshops and coaching programs for corporates for their mature workers. And, and I've sat through some of those programs and seen the impact on people. But I guess what I'm looking at is how can that be done at a bigger scale? Because a retirement coach can only get in front of so many people. So are there ways of industrialising that where the superannuation fund can play a role in that? Government can play a role Other organisations can play a role in helping to deliver those services. And yes, coaching will be part of it. A digital ecosystem where you can bring in other organisations as well and tap into the the experience. One of the things I think we have to recognise is that we all tend to accumulate in the same way, as I said before. So, and we all understand accumulation because we're all living through it at the moment. The transition to retirement and the decumulation and the living after full-time work is complex. I think one of the things that we're seeing at the moment with COVID is that it doesn't matter how well prepared we can be, things happen that we sit back and say, oh, I didn't see that coming. And and that's what retirement's like all the time. So for those of us sitting back and thinking how disrupted we are by COVID, we're getting a little bit of an insight into what life in retirement might be like. The real challenge then is how do you actually get people's headspace to understand these you know risks that pop up, constant different risks that pop up and different challenges. Uh, I think COVID is another great example of it. A lot of people are totally unprepared. And if this is what retirement will be and there's, there's a lot of challenges there in terms of that whole transition, right, and what does retirement look like, it's a really challenging uh, task to actually get people to understand that next stage of life. It is really challenging and it's complex and there's no single answer. So some of the solution needs to be a product approach and we think about the risks and what we need to do, and again, coming back to the super, not super yet, is that we need to think of it much more from a consumer perspective. And whilst all superannuation funds will say that they're member centric, when we, when you know, when you look at the way they operate internally um, and the business models, they're often not member-centric. And yes, there might be pictures of members up on the walls, but there's still a long way to go. So if I think about risks in retirement, we've got longevity risk, we've got sequencing risk, we've got health risks. Many people as they're into retirement now 
are in what we call the sandwich generation. They're dealing with their own retirement. They might be dealing with issues around their children or things like that, but they're also dealing with aged parents. Many people entering retirement, one of the things on their mind is dealing with aged parents and aged care, and especially at the moment, it's a big issue. So there's a lot going on when you're thinking about retirement, not just how much money have I got in my superannuation balance. It's interesting also, you you talk there about the need to be member-centric, but all these other issues around their family situation, other assets they hold, how many super funds actually have that data? It's very hard. And that's why I can see some of the solutions being from outside superannuation, the traditional superannuation funds. And look, uh, and it's not through want of trying. When I talk to superannuation funds, that's one of the problems they have. And many of them don't even know, they don't even have data about the member's superannuation because they might have money somewhere else. So it is very challenging for a fund to to be able to operate. But they do have a lot of data. They can be collecting more data and being able to use that data is critical, but also looking at a broader individual, um, not just as a a member, but as a broader consumer in society. Is there merits to maybe a system that allows super funds to share this back end around sort of member servicing, particularly in retirement, where, where funds can learn off each other rather than all these individual product managers, I guess you describe that as, is there some way that we can share information across the, the whole industry to help generate better income in retirement, generate better health outcomes, generate better connections to the age pension, this more holistic approach that you talk about? I think there is room for, for funds to think about what's competitive and what's not competitive and where can we combine resources to get better outcomes for Australians, not just better outcomes for my fund. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Some funds do cooperate and share things for certain reasons. The industry funds, for example, do have a number of you know joint ventures, if you want to call them, or shared service offerings. But more and more, they're they're moving away from that model as they become bigger and and start competing as well. How we actually solve that problem, I'm not sure. But I think there is room for for collecting data across across a broader range of funds and broader range of financial services. And hopefully the new open data regime might encourage more of that where data is shared more across various organisations and the data becomes owned by the person rather than by by the financial institution. You talk quite a bit about the data aspect. What do you see that funds aren't collecting now or maybe they do have and they're just not utilising it in the best way? I think it's a bit of both. One of the organisations I work with is Laneway Analytics, which supports a, lot, a number of funds with their data analytics programs. And a lot of it is getting the current data all together in one secure place is one of their challenges. And especially for those that outsource their administration to a third party, and there's some real challenges with getting data they need. But what I'm seeing, which is really interesting with some more mature funds, once upon a time, probably 90%, even 100% of the data they had on members would have been administration data. The shift we're seeing now is data being created outside of the core administration function. So, for example, the website, an interaction on the website, calls to the contact centre are coming through and they're recording them and using converting text to data and doing analytics on that. So, yes, the more mature superannuation funds are recognising now that data is not just contributions, date of birth, those sorts of very basic data sets, which is what superannuation data would have been even four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. 
let's maybe focus a little bit more on the the retirement piece. And there's obviously a retirement income review due out very soon. And there's been a lot of discussion around different forms of pension systems or account-based pensions or deferred lifetime pensions. Curious to get your thoughts on what's the most effective way in addressing some of the, the broader issues here. So I've got some pretty strong views on retirement products. To start with, an account-based pension is not sufficient for all members. And we need to be much more personalised. So it's all very well to collecting data and, and using that data for marketing. But why don't we also use that data to understand people's preferences around products and about their risk appetite? So, for example, longevity risk is one big issue that's not addressed by the system at all. And one of the organiz- another organisation I work with, Optimum Pensions, has developed a solution to, to help protect against longevity risk. And it's not just yes, you must buy an Optimum Pension product. It's saying we need a broader range of products. So longevity risk will be an issue for certain people. Is there a product for that? Sequencing risk or benefit, you know, being able to support my beneficiaries. So people have very different needs in retirement. And to say all we offer is an account-based pension ignores the fact that retirees have a lot of different needs, different risk appetites and different approaches to managing their life in retirement. And to think we can't solve that problem with a single account-based pension, which runs out of money before people retire. Just to continue on that point on on longevity risk, I can see some clear reasons as why they haven't done it. But do you have any specific thoughts around why funds have, have discounted the need to look into longevity risk? So it's interesting. It's one of the things I do have conversations with funds quite a lot. Part of it is they only have small cohorts in retirement or moving into retirement traditionally, but that's slowly growing now with the demographic shifts we're seeing in the funds. There's certainly a big perception that people don't don't want lifetime pensions, and that's a challenge. Part of that's the way they're sold and framed and discussed. So behavioural aspects are really important. And part of the problem is a lot of longevity products it means, oh, you've got to leave the fund to buy an annuity and funds don't want their members to leave their fund to have to buy an annuity. So one of the things we need to try and look at are what are some of the ways that we can generate longevity risk protection or other more innovative products, but keeping the fund, keeping the funds and more importantly, the member within the, within the super fund that they're in. So I think we're seeing, we're learning a lot from some of the products that have failed in the past. You know, there's been quite a few products launched in the last five to seven years that have maybe had probably less than even double figures in terms of you know, member take-up. So it's about learning from that and thinking about we're not going to get it right first time and it's not going to be one single problem, a, fun, a product that will solve all the problems. I guess another reason for funds being slow to take up the longevity products, many of the funds, maybe even all funds, will be having projects at the moment that are looking at retirement income products. Some of them are looking at longevity risk and prob- and, and insurance-based type products. Some are looking at insur- uh, investment type products. But for all funds, they're struggling to balance those strategic longer-term projects with the immediate needs of, well, this year it's COVID and early release, Last year, it was Protect Your Super and the other outworkings of the Royal Commission. The year before, it was the Royal Commission itself. So I do have sympathy for the funds that they're under a lot of pressure to be reactive rather than proactive. And and I think the successful super funds in the future will be able to operate at two paces. Yes, dealing with the day-to-day crises and urgencies, which do come up a lot, 
and and we can't ignore them, but to be able to do what's important, not just what's urgent. You mentioned there a little bit about the risks there and longevity, and and what comes to me is the potentially for the for some of the funds industry or even the retail funds to end up pulling that longevity risk and and almost create their own style of insurance. Is is that a, another alternative? I think there's an interesting conversation to be had there and how possible that is, and even will that be a big enough pull? What we're doing with Optimum Pensions is actually using a large global reinsurer to provide the the reinsurance to the longevity risk because it is hard to protect against longevity risk, absolutely. I think the industry at some point in not too distant future will probably be big enough to be able to do that if we can get the cooperation on that. And I can understand why why funds are hesitant to, to do that. So maybe using insurance companies, they funds currently use insurance companies for group risk. There's only one one superannuation fund that does their own has their own insurance company. So if they're happy using an insurance company for group risk while people are while people are accumulating and life risk, why can't they use an insurance company for longevity risk? We have seen globally in insurers offering these sorts of uh, longevity products, but haven't really seen it here same way. And part of the problem here is people tend to, the super funds tend to operate not on, again, not what's important for them or their members, but what prioritise from the government agenda. And, you know, one of the things we saw, you know, we've yes, we've got a retirement income review. It's been given to government. No one quite knows when we're going to see it yet. But even the terms of reference of that retirement income view were pretty narrow, I thought, where it was fact-based, collecting information, not making recommendations. And the other thing we saw was in the um, buried away in the announcement, was it last week, the week before last, the economic update that um, Josh Farrenberg gave was a comment about the retirement income covenant being deferred. And I think most people probably even missed that in that announcement. So funds will look at that and say, oh, great, we can defer we can defer developing a retirement income framework because the government says it's okay to defer it. Whereas my response would be, Actually, isn't that the fundamental reason for having a superannuation fund is retirement income? So wouldn't wouldn't one think that we've got an insurance framework, we've got an investment framework, wouldn't we want to best practice have a retirement income framework rather than rate, waiting for the government to tell us we have to? Some of these things are just political footballs and obviously with COVID, it just gets kicked down the road even further. But I'm curious around well, the terms of reference for the retirement income uh, review, what specifically were you thinking that you'd like to have seen included? I would, I would love to have seen more focus on retirement income. I suspect, you know, even if I look at the um, submissions and anybody that's got a bit of spare time, I always recommend looking at submissions to government um, papers or reviews or inquiries because you can learn a lot about how people are thinking that way. But a lot of the submissions both and a lot of the public comment about it has been on things like, should we go to 12% or should we include housing or things like that? And now all those things are important but a lot of the commentary I've seen, especially should we go to 12%, should we make superannuation stay compulsory even as an extreme view? What do we do about the 450 a month limit? They're all important issues, but they're again talking about the accumulation phase as opposed to what happens once people have retired. And unfortunately, that's the focus, not just from the funds and the industry, but from the government. And we saw the same thing uh, last year with the release of, or very early this year, with the release of the APRA My Super Member Outcome heat maps. One would have thought member outcomes should be talking about retirement income, and yet it's all about fees and, and uh, 
and investment returns. And, and again, it's only talking about the accumulation phase. So even though superannuation is meant to be part of a retirement income framework, it seems that uh, most of the conversation is focused on the accumulation phase. How can we get more money in? But for many Australians, what they've got in the system is what they've got in the system and it's how they can best use it when they retire is, is what should be important to them. It always comes back to the whole idea of what gets um, measured is what gets managed. Maybe if there was this heat map approach that was taken to retirement, it would actually force funds to actually do something and, and be more innovative in, in their approaches. Yeah, that's right. And that's why um, you know I'm, I was very encouraged by the retirement income covenant and the retirement income framework requirement and the fact that funds would have to actually look in, you know, be able to demonstrate what they're doing, how they've thought about retirement income provision for their members. So, you know, at least it's coming. When it's coming, we don't know. I mean, it's been delayed and will it be delayed again? Unfortunately, it probably will. But I'd certainly recommend funds not to wait, you know, especially some of the larger funds need to be thinking. You know, we we all talk about superannuation being long-term investment, and yet we make quite short-term decisions strategically for our funds. Funds themselves should be thinking about longer term when they're doing their strategy, when they're doing their business planning, the same way they ask their members to make long-term decisions when they're doing their investments. Is there an issue with with the funds in terms of, you know, their ability to run a business is getting constrained, particularly now with early access. A lot of members have cleaned out their balance. The administrative fees now will, will probably be decreased for, for a number of them. Is there is there an issue for these super funds? Is that one of their excuses that they may use that it is very difficult to manage the business day to day, but then also be very strategic as they think about retirement income, given how they need to lower fees to such a you know a level? They're constantly managing the competition in this open you know, open fund era where you know, people can move around. Is that part of this this challenge that they face? That's an interesting observation, and I think uh, it's a big part of that, that if I think about a superannuation fund historically, and in fact, we didn't call them super funds, we used to call them trustee officers, and they didn't have a CEO, they had a fund secretary back in the distant past. And I think, you know, and the job of a super fund or the trustee office was to manage the regulations, CIS, and to manage outsource providers. Now they are fully-fledged financial services business that do need to think very differently. And the last probably five to seven years, we've seen many funds slowly adapting and and struggling to adapt, but no, they need to. And I think we're still on a journey there. And funds do need to become fully-fledged financial services businesses with with a very different focus from purely the fiduciary and, you know, fiduciary duties. And I think it's, it's certainly not an easy task for a superannuation fund to manage both. And I think... Looking forward, the successful superannuation funds will be those that can run as a as a business to be innovative, strategic, forward-looking, but also have the BIMBA's best interest in heart. Now, how to do that? There's no simple answer. And and it is going to have attention. We've got, you know, as soon as you have boards that are selected, you know, board members are, are, are there because they're there for their fiduciary responsibilities, they're elected. They represent the members or the employers. That's a very, very important function of a board. Almost by definition, the same people aren't the sort of people you'd want on a advanced, innovative retirement income 
uh, retirement income business or retirement financial services business. So I, I do have a lot of sympathy for, for superannuation funds and their boards that are expected to do both. And that, that's where it comes back to innovative business models that I referred to earlier. We need to think about different ways of operating a retirement income business. Question that comes to mind and maybe highly controversial, but are, are a lot of the retail funds maybe better set up because they've got the backing of a balance sheet that they can do things? They've also got these boards that are probably a little bit more questionably business-minded in terms of thinking about how to manage the business and the fund side and the develop products. Are retail funds maybe in a better position? Well, it's funny you should say that because certainly pre-Royal Commission, my, my thinking on this, and it's something I've thought about a lot, uh, my thinking on this would be that you almost do need two boards. One board as the trustee board that is 100% focused on the member and the other board being the equivalent of a corporate board with people there that understand technology and innovation and customer and all that. And knowing that those two boards will have differences and difference of opinion and difference of priorities and, for, and, and that's exactly the model in the retail funds, because if you look at any of the retail funds, buried away in them is their office of trustees. You know, NAB have got Newless, which became very prominent in the Royal Commission. So that model of having two boards, I did pre-Royal Commission, I thought that would be an interesting thing to try at an industry fund. Unfortunately, the Royal Commission highlighted where that goes wrong, where that tension between the company, the corporate board, and ultimately the shareholders in the company and then the fiduciary board, the regulatory board that's looking after the members. How do you resolve that? And we saw, unfortunately, that was resolved the wrong way in many retail funds and the Royal Commission, you know, brought that into stark relief. However, that shouldn't stop us thinking about innovative business models. I'm not going to give you an answer because I don't know what the answer is because I thought it was. I thought I was getting close pre-Royal Commission. But is there a way for a large industry fund to be able to do both, to be able to be a forward-looking, strategic financial services business competing against organisations like Google and Apple and Amazon, and at the same time, be the best trustee board they can be. They're challenging, and I'm glad I'm not one of those. I'm one of those trustee boards at the moment because how do you balance that off? But, but I think again, as I said, I think the successful funds. When we look back in maybe ten years' time, the successful superannuation funds that are those are going to be those that can manage that tension, can manage both the urgent and the important, but also reorganise their business models to be able to thrive in the uncertainty because we can't just say, oh, things will get back to normal, then we'll be able to operate again. The rules are going to keep changing. The economic environment's going to keep changing. The competitive environment's going to keep changing. The technology environment's going to keep changing. And the successful companies are going, to, are going to be those that actually welcome that change because they're going to be able to thrive in that change and, and see that constant change and disruption as actually their competitive advantage. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Stephen. A pleasure, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.